Isaiah chapter 40, verses 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the promise of hope and the strength, the endurance that you give when your people wait and hope, anticipate the coming of the Lord. God, I pray for us today as we come into this place, Lord, needing hope. As we come into this place experiencing all of the things that the world says we should have hope in, or all of the reasons why it says we should not have hope in the Bible or hope in Christ. Lord, we come in carrying all of these things. and We just lay it all at your feet and ask for you to sift through it all, to sort through it all and to get rid of the lies and to remind us of the truth and keep our eyes fixed and focused on you, God. Would you not only teach us today, but would you pour hope into our hearts today. God, we need you. We love you. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, well, I am not a botanist. I don't think I could keep a cactus alive. A green thumb is the farthest thing from what I am able to do when it comes to green things, when it comes to plants. But I am told by my children, and I have verified with Google, that the reason sunflowers are called sunflowers is not only because they look like the sun, but because sunflowers have the ability to look at the sun. See, every morning, sunflowers will face the eastern horizon waiting for the sun to rise. And as the sun traverses across the sky, a sunflower will actually rotate and keep itself looking directly at the sun until the sun goes down and it slowly turns, faces east again, and waits for the next dawn. I think a sunflower is actually a beautiful picture of what the Bible calls hope. See, biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's not like so many Christmas lists being made by children across the world for things that, that they have no knowing whether or not they'll actually receive. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's not um, circumstantial optimism where you look at life and you kind of weigh it in the balance and go, I think good things will happen. No, biblical hope is an eager expectation that we will receive the very thing that we are waiting for. This is a very different kind of hope than our culture's hope. See, biblical hope is like the sunflower. 
Its confidence is in the faithfulness of the sun to rise every morning. It knows that it's coming, and so it waits. And God is more faithful than the sun. And so those who trust in God wait for God. Those who trust in God expect God to move, expect God to show up in their circumstances, expect God to bring light to the darkness. And so we wait for the Lord. In fact, this word wait that we see in verse 31 is a a specific Hebrew word, kava. And it can mean waiting. It can also mean hoping. And so I think anticipate is, is a good way to understand this word. It's not idly waiting for time to pass. It's an active expectation and anticipation for what is coming. Psalm 130 demonstrates the sense of this word well. When the psalmist uses it to, to say that he waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. See, the watchman like the sunflower, strained their eyes for the east. Darkness brought uh, danger for the city. And so the watchmen would be up on the walls in the darkness, not able to see very well, but they would strain their eyes for the east and they would wait for the sun to come up. And when it did, it brought light that exposed what the darkness was hiding and they were safer in the light. And so they waited for the sun. They knew that it was coming. The sun would not be delayed. And so they waited, they expected, they anticipated, they hoped in the rising sun. See, according to our text, Israel was in need of a hope like this. They were in a very dark place, exiled in Babylon, far from their home, far from their land, far from their temple, and they were losing hope. They had hoped that God would deliver them from Babylon, but his salvation appeared to be delayed in coming. And so apparently in their suffering, they began to doubt God's ability and even his desire to save them. They say, my way is hidden from God and my right is disregarded by him. Now, these are two very different accusations, but they're connected. The first is to say, If I am hidden from God, then God is blind. God cannot see me. If God saw me, certainly I wouldn't be experiencing what I am experiencing. But since I am in this darkness, God must be blind. He is unable to see. But the second accusation asks the question, well, what if God does see me? And yet I'm still in this situation. That would mean that God has disregarded me. So Israel is wrestling with these two accusations. God, you're either blind or you don't care. Because if you saw me and you cared about me, we wouldn't be experiencing what we are experiencing And so Isaiah shows up and he calls these accusations exactly what they are. He calls them lies. And lies are the rival of hope. Lies will rival our hope. There is perhaps no greater threat to our hope in God than the lies that we believe about God. 
Even the most faithful believers, even the most theologically astute theologians and pastors and preachers, people who've been walking with Jesus their entire lives, I know how much many of you love Jesus. And yes, even you will be tempted to believe lies about God, believe things about God that are not true. And I'm not talking about having the wrong opinion about some secondary issue like baptism or the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about bold-faced, flat-out lies, untruths about God, about his nature and about his character. Maybe it's doubting that God has your best interest in mind or, or not believing that his grace is actually sufficient for you. Or like Israel, maybe it's thoughts that you are hidden from him or insignificant to him. God doesn't see me. He doesn't know me. He doesn't care about me. These are lies. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have true faith. It doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have saving faith. Praise God, we are saved by grace and grace alone. We're saved by grace, but it does mean that mixed in with our faith are these temptations to believe things about God that don't actually align with who he is. And the lies will eventually begin to affect our relationship with him. There was a season in my life when I had fallen prey to lies about God. I was serving as a pastor at a church. I, if you had given me a theological aptitude test, I believe I would have done quite well. And yet I was carrying with me lies, things that I was actively believing beneath the surface about God that weren't true. I was constantly afraid that if I got too close to God, that he would bring pain into my life. Some of you live this way as well. I believe that if I, if I truly trusted God or if I truly invested in my intimacy with the Lord, that he would respond by bringing pain into my life. And so I was hesitant to trust him. I remember once preparing to preach a sermon. It was Advent. I was preaching on the trust of Mary. And I was I was preparing this place in my notes where I was, I was planning to call the people to put their trust in Jesus. And God said, you can't say that because you won't even say that. You can't call them to trust me if you are not trusting in me. And I knew I couldn't preach this. I needed to reckon with this distrust in my heart. And I sat there with my computer open in the middle of this coffee shop, staring blankly for like 30 minutes, just trying to muster the courage to say, Jesus, I trust you. And when I did, my knee-jerk reaction was I truly believed my phone was going to ring with bad news on the other end. That if I, if I gave God my trust, if I gave God my life, if I truly surrendered my life to him, he'd make my life a hell. And I was afraid of God. I was afraid of communing with him. 
I knew that none of that was true theologically. But the way I was living and the way I was relating to God absolutely demonstrated that beneath the surface, I was believing this lie. One day when talking to a friend, he asked me about this and he said, where do you think that fear comes from? And I'll never forget, I said, experience. Because the seasons in my life where God accomplished some of the greatest work were seasons of pain. The illness and death of my father, my wife's miscarriage, struggling so much in my, my, my job in ministry that I almost got fired from Reality LA. That is a story for another time. But these seasons of struggle and pain were seasons where God accomplished some of the greatest work in me. And so I was terrified that God was just looking for reasons to wound me so that he could sanctify me. Because that was my experience. And instead of believing the truth that God can and does use suffering to refine his people, I was believing the lie that God only uses suffering and pain to refine his people. And so I was living in fear and then resistant to trust. I believed all the right things that God had done, what Jesus had done to save me. I could check all of the theological boxes, but I was believing the lie that God was just waiting for me to get close enough to strike. And so I was living in my relationship with God, with my dukes up, just waiting, fearing. And it was dismantling my hope it was dismantling my relationship with him. See, Israel was believing the lie that God did not see them, that God did not care for them. I was believing the lie that God could not be trusted with my life. He could not be trusted with my family. He could not be trusted with my health. If there is not already something that you are tempted to believe about God that is not true about God, there will come a time in your life where you will find yourself operating out of the lie instead of out of the truth, and it will rival your hope. Whatever it is, it will rob you of joy. It will rob you of intimacy. It will rob you of the hope that you were meant to have in God. So today, maybe you're experiencing a lack of hope. Maybe you're experiencing uh, a, a, a deficiency in your relationship with God because of something beneath the surface that you're believing about God that is not true. You may be unaware of it, but you may be believing lies about God. So then how do we discern the lies in our lives, the lives, the lies that we are tempted to believe if we're not aware of them. Well, first, the word of God. The way uh, counterfeit officers, officers who are, are trained to identifying counterfeit bills, the way they train is not by studying all of the counterfeits. You don't need to search for all of the lies you might be believing. You just need to be well acquainted with the truth. As counterfeit officers, they study the real thing to know what the counterfeit is. And so study the real thing. Be so acquainted with the truth 
that anytime the lies pop into your head, you can identify what it is. Prayer, opening yourself up to the Lord and just asking that he would search your heart and reveal any lies that you might be believing. God will be good to gently and graciously put his finger on the things that aren't true of him. And and incredibly significant, we see this in the text, community. Israel needed Isaiah to point out the lies. They needed Isaiah to point out the blind spot. You also, you need people in your life who know you and know your faith and know your struggles, not just to hold you accountable, but to make you aware of the things that you might not see. To be to to you as Isaiah was to Israel and as that friend was to me to just point this out. Why do you think you're living like this? And be there with you to, to shepherd you through the confession of the lies and believing the truth. If we want to be able to root out the lies in our lives, we need to be invested in the word of God, the truth that casts out the lies. We need to be invested in prayer, asking God to reveal these things. And we need to be planted within community so that other brothers and sisters in Christ can help us expose these things, not to rub our noses in it or to shame us, but so that they can walk with us into the freedom of rejecting the lie. And so Isaiah recognizes the lies as rivals to Israel's hope. And so he condemns the rivals of hope and he preaches for a revival of hope. See, first he calls out the lies. He says, why are you saying these things, Israel? Why are you saying that you are hidden from him? Why are you saying that you are disregarded by him? Do you not know? Have you not heard? He calls out the lies, but then he reminds them of the truth. See, the only way to combat the lies we believe about God is to remember the truth about God. Church, do you not know? Have you not heard who God is and what he has done? Isaiah reminds Israel, let me remind you, Israel, of who this God is that you believe. And he addresses truths that specifically overturn the lies that they're believing in. And so like Israel, you need to know today. That not only are you not hidden from God, church, you cannot be hidden from God. It is not possible for you to be hidden by God. Isaiah proves it by pointing out the truth that God is limitless in his presence and in his power. God is without limits in his presence and his power. He is everlasting, eternal. That means that God is present, past, present, and future. All of time is seen by him. All of your life is seen by him. Nothing is hidden from him. Isaiah says that God is the creator of the ends of the earth. And so if God is not limited in his knowledge of time, he is neither limited in his knowledge of space. The ends of the earth, God is present always and everywhere. Throughout all of time, throughout all of space, nothing is hidden from him. He sees 
everything. You are not hidden from God. You cannot be hidden from God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. And he goes on to say that he is limitless in his power and in his understanding. He doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He doesn't just see you, church. He knows you. He knows your hearts. He knows your thoughts. He knows your lives. He is intimately acquainted with all that you are and all that you desire and all that you hope for and all that you fear. He is everlasting, far beyond the beginning and the end of your life. He is always present, far beyond your own experience. But in this entire world, you cannot be hidden from God. Certainly you are not hidden from God. He sees you and he knows you. But then if he sees, Israel asks, why are we in this dilemma? He might see me, but has he disregarded me? You might be thinking, okay, I believe that God sees, that he sees me and he, and he knows where I am and what I am struggling with. But does he care? And so Isaiah continues to proclaim the truth that God is not only limitless in his presence and power, but God is also generous with his presence and power. He says he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. See, the fact that Israel feels weak, the fact that they feel defeated, actually has nothing to do with who God is or what God was willing to do. It's like going on a long uh, road trip and forgetting to put gas in your tank. And then when you get stranded, you blame the gas station. Or your phone dies, and so you blame like the electrical circuitry in your house. But you didn't plug it in. It's not, it's not the electricity's fault. It's your fault. You didn't plug your phone into the wall. You didn't put gas in the car. And so often when we're in these difficult circumstances in life, we're just in normal daily grind of, of life. And we're not particularly feeling God's presence or his favor or his love or his approval, we have this tendency of pointing the finger at God. But Isaiah reminds Israel, he goes, you're not plugging yourself into God. You're not plugging yourself into the truth. Of course, you're going to run out of gas. Of course, your battery is going to die. You're not remembering what you need. You're not remembering who God is. You're not plugging yourself into that source of life. You're like a dead sunflower that stopped looking toward the sun. And he sets their gaze back onto God. God is not at fault when we lack hope. Isaiah is trying to bring them back to life by tearing down the lies that they're believing and reminding them of the truth that they've already received. And so when we turn from the lies and we turn toward the truth, it's called repentance. See, many times we think of repentance as turning from bad things that we do only. Well, I'm not going to do that anymore. 
Maybe we'll go so far as to say, no, repentance isn't just turning away from the bad things we do, but it's actually turning toward the good things that God wants us to do. But I want us to take it down a layer deeper. See, repentance is not only turning from our wrong actions, but also turning from our wrong beliefs. This is repentance on a much deeper level. It's repenting of the sin beneath the sin. It's repenting from the lie that perpetuates the sin. This is the repentance that many of us need today. We can do all of the right things, but if we continue to believe the wrong things about God, we will continue to find ourselves frustrated. We will continue to find ourselves lacking hope. We will continue to find ourselves struggling with the same sins. Even if we repent from those actions, it's just going to pop its head up in another way, in another aspect of our life. We need to repent of the wrong beliefs. If you're stuck in your relationship with God, in your intimacy with the Lord, if you're struggling to to find hope or to have faith in him, you can try to do all of the right things. But if you continue to believe the false things, you're not going to experience any fruit. That's just the cold, hard fact. It's only going to create bitterness and distance between you and God. And so if you would experience a revival of your hope, Church, if we want to experience our hope coming to life again, we must begin by combating the lies that we believe with the truth about God. See, in my own lies that I already mentioned, the lies that I was tempted to believe, this friend of mine that I needed, he came to me and he reminded me of who God was. And in my fear that God could only use my pain to bring about his purposes, my friend asked me, do you really believe that that is who God is? Do you really believe that that's who God is? That God, that God wants to only use pain to bring about transformation? And I said, no. I don't believe that's who God is. I don't believe that's what scripture teaches about God. I don't believe that that accusation would be true of God's character. Ultimately, I know that God does not bring about my transformation only through my suffering, but ultimately he brings about my transformation through him taking my suffering. See, God changes you, not by wounding you. God was wounded on the cross in Christ so that you could be transformed, so that you could be changed. This is who God is. I said, no, I don't believe that's actually who God is. I believe that's a lie. He's not looking to afflict me, but he was afflicted for me. And so we prayed together. And it reminded me of that time that I was at my computer screen, just mustering up the courage to say, Jesus, I trust you. And we prayed together. And I said, God, I don't believe this is who you are. I think I've been believing a lie about you and about the way that you work, but I just want to call that out. It's a lie. I reject that lie. And I believe the truth that you love me. I believe the truth that you want what's best for me. I believe the truth that you were afflicted for me. And the strangest thing happened. I didn't have that knee-jerk reaction. I didn't think my phone was going to ring with bad news on the other end. Because before I was just saying the words. 
But this time, God destroyed the lie and he restored my faith and my intimacy with God and my relationship with him and my desire for him and my hope in him. When we repent of the false beliefs that perpetuate our sin and we turn to the truth about God, church, there is power. There is power for transformation when we combat the rivals of our hope and we allow the truth to proclaim a revival of our hope. This is what many of us need today. This doesn't just apply to me and my sin or Israel and their sin. It applies to all of the sin, all of the lies that we harbor. And so ask yourself, where in your life is your faith under attack? Where in your life is your hope being challenged? And what is the truth that combats the lie that's beneath the surface? The truth that defeats the rival and speaks revival into your life. So the presence of these lies are not necessarily evidence that you're not a Christian. Okay, but without a doubt, the presence of these lies will rival your joy and will hinder your Christian walk. And so Isaiah identifies the lies and reminds Israel of the truth. But then he tells them what they can expect if they cling to this truth. And if they continue to wait in hope on God, he says that when we wait on the Lord in hope, then we'll experience a transformation of strength to endure our circumstances. It's not always that we'll be plucked out of our circumstances, but we will be strengthened within them. We're strengthened within our circumstances. Our strength will be made new, he says, that we will mount up on wings like eagles, that we will run with the strong, that we will walk through the daily grind of life and we will not grow faint. We will not grow weary. We will have the strength that we need to endure the seasons and the circumstances that we're in, even difficulty, even difficult circumstances. We will be able to have the strength that we need to endure. We'll endure even the darkest nights like the sunflower with our faces pointed east, trusting that we will see the salvation of God. Church, do you believe that you will see the salvation of God if you wait in hope for Christ? Whatever you're experiencing, whatever lies, whatever circumstances would tempt you to believe that you're hidden from God or that you're disregarded by God, whatever it is that is there in there that causes these things to well up, know for certain that if you wait on the Lord and you're trusting in him and you're looking to him as the source of life, just like the sun, God will rise in your life and he will restore to you the strength that you need to endure. This is the hope that we need today. And so today, we not only need to combat the rivals of our hope, we not only need to stir up a revival of our hope by preaching the truth, but ultimately we need to recognize that we cannot do this ourselves, but we need to wait upon the Lord and prepare to receive the... the, I'm even confusing myself with this tongue twister. Prepare to receive the arrival of our hope the arrival of hope, the revival of hope, and receiving the arrival of hope. See, one of the greatest evidences 
One of the greatest evidences that God sees you and that he cares for you and that he wants to share his power and presence with you is the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God. If there's ever any doubt, does God see me? Does he know what I go through? And does he care about me? When we're tempted to believe that God doesn't see or that God doesn't care, we can remember that it's because of what God saw in this world, because of the brokenness that he saw, because of the pain of sin, because of the struggle that we face every day, and because he cared so much that he came to us to save us. What we celebrate on Christmas morning This gift of God to his people, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God, it is a reminder that you are seen, that you are understood, and that God cares about you to save you. He came to you to save you. And this is what we remember during the Advent season, the anticipation, waiting As the people of Israel waited for Messiah to be revealed, we remember that anticipation. We remember what it's like to live in the darkness. We're aware of our own darkness and we wait patiently for God to be revealed. We wait patiently for Christmas morning. See, Jesus knows the weakness that you experience. the, The infinite God with limitless power came as a baby, completely void of any power, any ability to care for himself or anybody else. He lived just as we live, yet without sin. He experienced the brokenness of the world just as we experience the brokenness of the world, yet without sin. And in his humanity, he had to depend on the same presence and power of God as we do today. So Jesus depended upon the Holy Spirit to live every day, just as you and I have to. Jesus is not unaware of you. He's not unconcerned for you. He lived in the hope of the salvation that the Father would accomplish through him. And this kept him going. This was his strength. His hope in God was his strength to endure. But the birth of Jesus was just the beginning. We can look at the baby in the manger and see God's love and his care for his people. But there is no greater picture of Jesus' concern for us or his willingness to do what was necessary to save us than the cross. It's on the cross where we know we are seen. It's on the cross where we know our sin is not hidden from God. Our lives are not hidden from God. See, if you want to know whether or not you actually believe that you are hidden from God is not to think about the way God relates to you in your pain and in the difficult circumstances in life. But how do you believe God relates to you in the sinful moments of your life? If you do not believe that God is aware of your sin, then chances are, whether you know it or not, you're probably believing deep down that God is not aware of your suffering either. Because if he's not present here, then why would he be present there? And so we look to the cross and we know 
that God sees our sin, that God sees our suffering, and that he was willing to do something about it. He's not unconcerned. He's deeply concerned. Enough to die so that your sin would be washed away, so that you could be cleansed. And it was because of Jesus' hope in this salvation that strengthened him to endure. Hebrews 12.2 says that it was because of the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy of salvation, the joy of accomplishing what the Father had given him to accomplish. And it's that same joy, the joy of that salvation, our joy in Christ, that is our strength to endure. Though our suffering may be deep, though the night may be dark, it's for the joy that is set before us in Christ that we endure, that we press on, that we experience a renewed strength, that we experience our our hope uh, mounting up on wings like eagles, that we experience the ability to run through the stressful seasons of life and walk through the ongoing monotony of life and not lose strength and not lose hope. It's because of God's faithfulness to send Jesus into this world to die for our sin and then rise again from the dead that we have hope, not just in what was done in the past, but we have hope to wait for his return. See, Advent's not only the time to remember that Christ has come, but to anticipate the future that Christ is coming again. Our hope will once again be restored to us. Just as the disciples saw Jesus ascend into the clouds, he will return. Christ is coming again. And when he does, our strength will be made new as we will be made like him. This is the hope that you have, church. Whether you know it or not, if you've, ter- if you've trusted in Jesus, your hope is coming again. Your hope will arrive in Christ. See, so we began our time by talking about sunflowers waiting for the rising sun. I also discovered this week because of Google that sunflowers can grow up to 14 feet tall. They don't have a very big stock and they can grow up to 14 feet tall. I mean, that's huge for a flower. The only way it seems possible is, is if the sunflower is like straining itself, rooted deep in its circumstances, rooted deep into the real world and just straining itself to get closer to the sun. To not just turn its face toward the sun, but to strain and to try to get as close as possible to the light. So we have something so much more powerful than sunlight on the horizon. The Son of God has appeared to give us hope. And so having received that hope, we like the sunflower, let's strain ourselves to look boldly in the face of Jesus, to be as near to the grace of God as possible, to be as close to his presence, knowing that he sees us, that he loves us, that he knows us, that he's cared for us, and that he has given himself to us. And receiving that hope, we eagerly anticipate Christ's return, keeping our eyes fixed on him, straining ourselves to be nearer to him so that when he comes, you will not be disappointed. But you will receive all that you've hoped for in Christ. 
as we prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas morning, let's remember this anticipation. Not wishful thinking, not blind or even circumstantial optimism. Let's remember the hope that Christ has given and remember the hope that we still have because he is coming again. And when he does, church, be ready to celebrate. Be ready to rejoice. Be ready to experience the fulfillment of your hope. Heavenly Father, this is what we anticipate. This is what we long for, your presence. God, we so desperately long for your presence and your power to come into this world and to restore the hope that we have, Lord, to restore, to heal us of sin, to forgive us, to cleanse this world of the things that, that ought not be here. And so, Lord, we long for that day, not as wishfully thinking, but as men and women who are confident that just as the sun rises every morning, you will return. And so we wait patiently, Lord. Strengthen us, give us endurance as we wait for you. Lord, I pray that if there be in us as individuals or as a community any lies of the enemy that are being harbored and allowed to, to reign and to hinder our intimacy, Lord, we pray, God, that you would identify them, that you would dismantle the lies with the truth and that we would experience the arrival of our hope in the face of Jesus Christ that you would stir our hearts for worship, to celebrate that these things are true, that we know they're true and we can be confident in them because of what you have done. So Holy Spirit, come and do the work that you desire to do among us. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.